Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Hey, Peter. Hey there. In this episode, you're going to hear Peter and I talk with UMass Boston poli-sci professor Aaron O'Brien about Elizabeth Warren's no good, horrible, very bad few weeks. After looking like the Democratic frontrunner in early October, Warren has hit the skids, plummeting in the polls nationally and in Iowa and New Hampshire. But first, before that convo, you're going to hear from Annie Linsky of The Washington Post. Linsky covered the 2016 campaign for the Boston Globe. She's been covering Warren closely for years. And in a recent piece for The Post, she and her colleagues Jeff Stein and Dan Ball said that Warren's struggles are directly linked to her, well, let's call it her evolution on health care. Her journey on health care has been a very torturous one. You know, she started the campaign with a position that was very, um, you know, flexible. She she was saying, look, I support Medicare for all. I'm a co-sponsor of that. But there are a lot of different ways to get there. And I'm, I'm open to different approaches. Now, that answer um, was something that the left wing of the party found really problematic. And Warren at that time was finding ways to really, uh, you know, glue herself to that left wing of the party. She was saying that she was the first out of the gate on on impeachment. Um, she was saying that she was not going to take you know, not only not have a super PAC, but she wasn't going to do any fundraisers. I mean, she was taking these really sort of eye-popping steps to say, I'm going to run a different kind of candidacy that really appeals to the left. And as part of that, many of these groups on the left were coming to her and saying, look, you know, you're, we like what we're hearing from you, but we also think you're being wishy-washy on Medicare for all. So fast forward to June, and she held her hand up high and said, I am for Medicare for all. I want to get rid of private insurance. And this sort of famous line, I'm with Bernie on Medicare for all. And, um, you know, as the summer wore on and as her campaign continued to rise, that answer began to get a lot more scrutiny. Um, you also saw other candidates who had supported Medicare for all, like Senator Kamala Harris, um, who has dropped out of the race now, but, you know, b- back away from that position. Um, and then you saw um, uh, Pete Buttigieg, you know, staking out a very different position and, and, and also finding his stride and really gaining momentum. So suddenly, you, you know, Senator Warren and Senator Sanders were, were really alone um, in the field in supporting Medicare for all. And I think that's where she began to think, like, look, I need to come up with a way to pay for this. At that point, Warren did what Warren does. She released a plan, but it didn't really go over the way she'd hoped. She offered a plan, a $20 trillion plan to pay for this massive proposal, an eye-popping number, um, mostly taxes on on the rich and taxes on corporations. But, you know, some economists would argue uh, taxes that would be passed on to the middle class if they were not direct taxes on the middle class. Um, And then, you know, two weeks after offering this plan, she says, look, we're not going to do Medicare for all in the first until the third year of my presidency. We're just going to open Medicare for most people to for everyone to to buy into and open it to others. Um, Many people that go in for free and offer Medicare really as a public option. And that that really puts her a lot closer to the position that um, Buttigieg um, and even Biden to some extent 
have have taken. So she's she's really moderated her position, and and that has caused consternation on the left. I um, mean, you, you know, you've seen the the nurses union backing uh, Bernie Sanders, for example. They're a, a large union that's been. You know, Medicare for all is one of their their top issues. Um, you know, that endorsement comes with a lot of money. Be that as it may, though, Linsky says it is still way too early to write Warren off. You can't necessarily at this point say that this entire journey has been a mistake on her part. I think, you know, her embrace of Medicare for all was part of her rise and is part of why she is, you know, today in this really vaunted position of being in these top four. I mean, I I can't tell you how fluid this race is. Now, as promised, let me bring Aaron O'Brien into the fold. First off, Aaron, thanks for joining us. Fun to be here. So given how fluid the race is, what is your take on where Warren stands right now compared to the rest of the field and in particular the other front runners? You know, I mean, she's damaged by this. I, I'm, we can debate whether she should be damaged by this and whether she's being fair, held to an unfair standard or a unique standard. But, you know, it's undeniable that her poll numbers have fallen. She's reinvented her campaign once before. There's no reason she can't do it again. You know, the Amy Klobuchar's, the Tom Steyer's would kill to be in her position. But, um, you know, she's one of four now. She's not uh, at the, the ascension at the top. When you say she's reinvented her campaign once before and can do it again, I want to make sure I know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? Well, remember about? in the summer, especially after she thought she was getting ahead of the when she took the DNA test um, for Native American and people were saying, oh, she has all this money. How come she's not polling better? And then she really doubled down on what Elizabeth Warren does best. And that's policy. Um, and we saw a Democratic electorate that was really energized by that. I mean, there's so many candidates, it's hard to get um, over 25 from anywhere. No, but they anywhere. were. They yeah. were. I mean, I saw them yeah. early on when she announced in, in Iowa and, right. and, and Puerto the, Rico. Right. And, you know, you look at her rallies and stuff and people are there. So, you know, uh, it, it, the campaign's obviously taking seriously that her changes on uh, health care have um, come with um, some pretty brutal, you know, takes in the media and falls in her numbers. Again, I want to, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but why is she being uniquely held responsible for changes in policy positions when people like, you know, Mayor Pete certainly didn't have the same details, but at, at the, um, you know, she's at the ropes a little bit, but she's still in the ring. I want to get Peter in here. But before I do that, I want to get you to elaborate a little bit on this question of fair or unfair treatment. You alluded to Buttigieg being light on details in certain areas, mm-hmm. suggesting that he hasn't gotten the same scrutiny for that that Warren has. Can you expand on that a bit? Sure. I, you know, I teach women in politics, and that's one of the areas I do research in. And one of the biggest, you know, stereotypes of that field is, uh, you know, I'm going to come on here and say it's all sexism, please. Uh, there's a lot of reasons campaigns don't do well. But one of them, uh, I know how many female presidents there have been in the United States. One of them includes sex- sexism. So, you know, what do I do? I go to the literature. And what the literature suggests is that women are just as likely as men to run or to win when they run. But women run with much thicker resumes and the empirical work shows that um, women's qualifications are viewed much more harshly by the electorate. Men start out with the idea that they're fit and they're assumed to be fit on policy. So I think this is a question of Elizabeth Warren made some missteps. That's undeniable. You know, like the campaign messed up some, she messed up some. But is she paying uniquely 
And I think the answer is there, yes, because we find that women candidates do pay more when they seem to falter on qualifications. And again, you know, Pete Buttigieg has made some real inroads on this. Pete Buttigieg's um, health care plan assumes that he can get it through the Senate without filibuster reform. So, you know, th- there's problems all around. Elizabeth Warren seems to be held um to uh, a different standard than some of the other male candidates in this particular race right now. It's not the only reason. I just think it's a part of the conversation. Peter Kadzis, does that ring true to you? Not completely. People who listen to the podcast regularly know that I think Pete Buttigieg is an overrated nut boy um, (laughs) who, uh, by the way, did score big when he took on, you know, he went to slay the giant, Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren, and he did. Um, He didn't slay her. He wounded her. Let me sort of tell you a little story. I had long predicted that she would break with Bernie at some point on health care and that she was just waiting for the right moment or for all I know, because I have absolutely no inside information, waiting until she had a plan that she felt comfortable with that she could put forward. When that moment came and and she released her plan, I, I remember reading through it and being sort of amazed by A, its price tag, B, its complexity. And I was in over my head. And I immediately went to Twitter to look to see what Matt Brunig had to say. Matt's a one-man think tank, um, crowdsourced, pretty lefty, I would assume socialist. He is scrupulous with numbers. Some socialists, you know, uh, worship ideology. He worships numbers. He basically said this is a Rube Goldberg machine, and he had a little caveat saying, if I'm doing the math correctly, this won't work, or it's not quite what she says it is. I mean, I'm squishing an awful lot in there. Now, the reason I disagree, and by the way, I'm not disagreeing with the idea that sexism doesn't play a role here. I think it's unique because Elizabeth Warren made such a fetish out of, I have a plan for that, that, you know, it became, you know, the reach for a classical illusion, her, her Achilles heel. She didn't get it in the gut. She got it in her heel. No one ever thought she'd be attacked. Is it the end? No, it isn't. And, and it's important to note, no one can become president without going through several trials by fire. And for, for example, the Native American flap, I, I remember talking with you about this at one point and saying, well, it's big trouble, but if she wants to be president of the United States, she has to find a way to survive something like this. And so far, Elizabeth Warren has proven herself to be a survivor. Let me get another point in though. There's never a good time to stop being the front runner. But when you look at the electoral calendar, this is a good time to, as Aaron said, for her to reinvent herself. Look, in six, seven weeks, we've got the Iowa caucuses, a week later the New Hampshire primary, then the South Carolina primary, then the Nevada caucus, then the Massachusetts primary, which is really Super Tuesday, which includes Texas and California. In Iowa, in New Hampshire, and in South Carolina, 
individual voter one-on-one contact is a real premium. And Adam, when you were out in Iowa with Elizabeth Warren, you've seen how effective she can be. She's terrific at that. And like I said, if there's a time she has to reinvent herself, it's not a bad time to do it. Aaron, when you talk about reinvention, uh, what kind of reinvention do you mean? Uh, I mean, I'm just I'm wondering if we're talking about Warren striking out in some bold new direction or just kind of recalibrating, recentering herself and uh, continuing to talk about the big structural change that she likes to talk about, which, as Annie Linsky pointed out in our convo and a, a bit that we did not actually play for you, Warren doesn't like talking about expanding government programs like mm-hmm. Medicare for All. She likes to talk about things like beefing up the regulatory apparatus. This is not her her sweet spot. So what are you thinking of? Are you thinking of a, like a Warren 2.0 or 3.0, or are you thinking of her getting back to doing what she likes to do? You know, we're going to do the 2.0, 3.0. You know those patches you get when something goes wrong from Word or something like small. Um, so definitely the latter there. Um, uh, you know, I think Elizabeth Warren just needs to remind people that they like policy. They like policy specifics. She listened to the electorate. And that's why she altered some of her health care plans. Wouldn't we, I mean, we all kind of want politicians who listen to us, right? So I think it's just reminding people of that. And as you both pointed out, um, the woman cannot take another selfie, right? There's so many <laughs> selfies. And so, you know, this idea that she she's all policy wonk and no heart, you know, ugh, that's just not true. It's factually inaccurate. Find me another candidate who has stood in all those, I don't know, <laughs> this is just aside and very random. I'm like, how do they all not have the flu, right? Like, all That's a great those. question. So that, but mm. for that alone, I guess that's not how I think she should um, reinvent herself. No, I just, I think it's a tweak. It's just, listen, uh, you know, people were saying my numbers didn't add up. There was skepticism about getting rid of, you know, that you have to opt in. I heard those critiques. I altered my plan as a result, and I've got 70 other plans that are adept. Take a look at those. If you want to have a policy discussion, Elizabeth Warren is going to be very happy. Peter, we should mention, I guess, that that Warren apparently has recalibrated a little bit the way she's campaigning. She's cut down the stump speech. She's taking more questions from voters. Uh, She had a, a... you know, quote unquote, viral moment recently when she talked a little bit with a a voter about telling her mother about her divorce, in fact. So what do you think of when we talk about reinvention or recalibration for Warren? Well, I think anything that allows voters to get to know you as a candidate, to, to get to feel you as a candidate is a plus. Even uh, a recent video you showed me of Joe Biden arguing with a guy in Iowa. Listen, Jack. Listen, Jack. Yeah. That's a plus. And it's a plus not because he was being a little overbearing, but because you have a sense he was being himself. Yeah. When Hillary Clinton cried in New Hampshire, that was very real. I remember that happening. You, you know, when that happening, and my immediate reaction is, you know, my God, we're such vultures. That wasn't my reaction. My reaction <laughs> you <two> was, are. <laughs> my reaction was, this is good for her. Um, Because you saw human Hillary. See, on the stump, she'll be fine. 
she likes doing this. She really likes doing this. But there's, when you were asking her the question, I said, well, sort of which Elizabeth Warren do we see? Now, what I mean by that isn't that she hides multiple personalities like, say, Richard Nixon did. It's that the Elizabeth Warren who co-wrote The Two-Income Trap you know, with her daughter was a, a real maverick, a, a, someone you know, a free thinker, um, an essentially commonsensical person who saw working class people being screwed and approach things differently. I mean, when she announced a number of conservatives went back, read that book, more or less confessing in print that we expected to get the goods and say, aha, and said, wow, she's a pretty sensible lady. Since then, she's moved so far to the left. Now, by the way, I don't question her move to the left. I'm not suggesting it's insincere. If it were insincere, she wouldn't have put forward her health care proposal. But Elizabeth Warren has become something of a left-wing ideologue. She can't disavow that. She has to find a way, and she has the means by being a pleasant person on the campaign, to connect with people so that that's okay. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, um, in part, but I think this idea that she's a left ideologue is a construction. I think that's something that's put on her. Um, you know, a lot of these articles, anybody listening certainly has taken interest in this as of late. And there's this narrative that's developed that I don't think you're endorsing, Peter, to be fair, that, you know, the voters are the ones who are really upset with her about Medicare for all, that the voters are really concerned. Yeah, the voters are not paying attention to No, the voters questions. don't give exactly. a hoot. <laughs> precisely, precisely. And so the next point on that is that, you know, corporations are the, like, look, follow the money. The money that has been put up against her because of this Medicare for all plan, this is not an organic, you know, upswell from the electorate. This is a highly sophisticated, paid and moneyed operation to say, you know where there's a lot of money in existing healthcare. She's coming after it. She's threatening it. So we're going to go after her. And, you know, the courts ruled they had the right to spend that money. But I think the idea that she's an ideologue isn't fair to her. You know, she's the first person who came out and wrote on bankruptcy and credit card companies, right? And that's not that that's left in a class sort of way that um uh, Democrats love and she's in a democratic primary. Well, that her tilling the soil, tilling the fields of the bankruptcy outrage is definitely earlier. Going up and, against Joe Biden, by the way. Going up yeah, against Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, we all have to wonder what, or at least I'm still wondering what Deval Patrick's all about. You know, Deval Patrick. I'm just, sorry, that, who? Yeah. <laughs> That's not really fair. And you know how excited I was when he got in the race. Well, but he, yeah, it's, he, it's he drove Kamala Harris out of the race, didn't he? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but to your point, I mean, one's been led to believe that people looking for, quote, sensible translation less radical people. We'll just have to agree. I, I, I we'll have to disagree. I think the, if, if, take party out of it, which is gosh darn impossible. But if you poll on something like that, should credit cards be able to target low income people at, you know, 30 percent interest rate? You know who likes that? Pretty much everybody. Right. So like I, I, that's not that sort of lefty ideologue that's speaking to working people, working class people. Now, whether to your point, whether it translates in that way is a different issue. Aaron, I haven't dug into how organic or inorganic 
the doubts that have been raised about Warren's plan are, and I probably should. But let me ask you, that that brings up another point. When I was following Warren really early on, one of the things I heard from people who were big fans of hers was this concern about her handling of the ancestry issue and I guess what it said about her ability to withstand the sort of attack she would get if she was the Democratic nominee and going up against Donald Trump. I'm wondering if wherever the the opposition to her plan is coming from, I'm wondering if her handling of this might raise similar doubts, even among people who like her a lot. Because as Annie Linsky described for us, you had her sort of vague on this issue, sensing uh, a need to go left on it, then going left, then going back to the right when that didn't quite work out in a way that seems to have alienated people both on the left and in the middle. Uh, wouldn't it be fair for anyone kicking the tires on the various Democratic nominees, people who really want to see Donald Trump out of office, to, to look at this evolution and say, you know, if she's making an unforced error like this in the primary, what's going to happen in the general? I think that's completely fair. I just think that question should come up of every candidate. You know, who hasn't paid is Joe Biden. Um, you know, I saw and I like Joe Biden, you know, like it's hard to just as a person, he seems like an honorable person and all that stuff. But when you're up there forgetting that Kamala Harris is it was also, uh, you know, uh, an, a female popular. black senator. Exactly. Yeah. And when you're making a punching metaphor, when talking about domestic violence, the man has no malice. But those are the you know, what's going to imagine a lot more viewers against Donald Trump. And he he stumbles and things like that with his words. And he doesn't pay in the same way as my point. Yes, Democrats want to win and they're anxious and they're scared. So kick as many tires as you want, but kick all the tires. The health care thing is in the past. It won't be forgotten. Certainly, if she's the nominee, it'll be brought up again, as will the Native American thing. I think there are some other questions or issues. I'm not sure quite how to phrase this. Um, things about Elizabeth Warren that may come out in the next several weeks. Things about herself, nothing hidden, the nature of who Elizabeth Warren is. A couple of months ago, right when Warren was beginning to take off, I happened to have a cup of coffee with two women very active in Democratic national politics. And I stress the women because, A, it's a sensitive point, and B, they're friends of Elizabeth Warren's, and they played a role, uh, not a key role, neither would claim, but they, they were among the people who helped convince her to run for Senate. And now we may, we now think of her as being Senator forever. Well, she wasn't. They both said they worried that she's so used to being the smartest person in the room that if elected president, how would she be in terms of taking good advice that she might not want to hear? They were talking getting ahead of ourselves, being president. But I think in the next seven to 10 weeks, you know, as this campaign hits the ground and goes, her ability to take advice that she might not agree with won't be known to us until the campaign books are written, and we all know. <laughs> but that's going to be something to judge. I think I know what you're saying. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how much she's able to take counsel that she might well, not he, instinctively he, he, agree with. Here's an example. And by the way, I admire her for not taking the big money. And here's an example of her 
being tough-minded, standing up to her own staff, you know, causing the resignation of her previous finance guy who said, listen, this is a disastrous decision. But she's so aligned with the left. You heard Annie Linsky talk about, you, you know, the left was concerned about this with her. The left was concerned about that. By the way, that's a strategic choice. That, that, that's not a bad thing. And as Aaron has pointed out, that doesn't mean people see her that way. We, the media, we, the press, are still filtering information about all the candidates. You know, come February 3rd, that's not going to stop. But in the wake of Iowa, that's going to change. I saw Aaron scrawling <laughs> rapidly and intensely while you were talking. No, you yeah, and, the, and those are words that can't be said on a you, family you know, podcast. And you saw beautiful cursive calligraphy. Um, no, yeah, I shouldn't I, say scrawl. Your penmanship <laughs> is excellent. <laughs> he lies for me the only time. Um, you know, I think you, you know, the critique of those two is fine. But again, do they make that same critique of others? Keep in mind, Cory Booker is up with an ad right now. It's actually a super PAC, but... We all know how that goes, uh, saying, I'm the Rhodes Scholar mayor. And Buttigieg is out good there going, no, I'm the young Rhodes Scholar mayor. You know, like, um, uh, it takes a lot of hubris to run. And I think everybody who's been on that debate stage thinks they're the smartest in the room. I mean, Steyer and Bloomberg and our own Deval Patrick. Oh, gosh, there's, you know, 13 candidates. You know what's missing? Me. Right. And so, you know, hubris is constant when you're running for office or else it wouldn't happen. Um, and I, I think the other big thing is who are they running against? They're running against Donald Trump, who we can certainly agree, does not listen to advice from anyone. So if, if a major concern is who is going to actually listen to their advisors, I don't think it's partisan to say that anyone who consistently makes the Democratic stage will do so more than Donald Trump. All of the Democratic candidates, and maybe none more so than Buttigieg, need to diversify their base. 538 had a fascinating piece looking, is only 538 can, under a microscope at, at Buttigieg's post-Warren bump. And what they found is that in no uncertain terms, he's just attracting more people like those he already has. Oh, now, that's good. There's no, you, you can, that makes his jump, as opposed to Kamala Harris's jump, a really solid one. However, it underscores his much larger weakness. Um, we all know that minorities, other non-college educated people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this was a piece just about the Buttigieg bump. But I, I took the terms and I went and looked at all the other candidates. You know, those top four all have the same challenge. Elizabeth Warren has it. Biden has it. How do they diversify? I guess we can't even call them their base anymore. How do they diversify their pool of potential voters? And for each candidate, we're talking about Warren right now, Warren is well-situated to appeal to a diverse group of people. Now, for example, so, yeah. it, well, one of the things she's done is, metaphorically speaking, she's folded up the anecdote about her mother putting on the dress to go. And I heard her tell that, 
you know, at her second or third campaign stop when she ran for Senate. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I heard her tell. That's an old anecdote. And I was incredibly moved by it. You know, coming from a blue-collar family myself, I knew what that dress was. My mom had a dress like that. My grandmother had a dress like that. People relate. But she's put that dress away now. And she's trying other things out in the field. Um, See, this is where I think her um, background as a teacher comes into play. Um, I've seen some videos taken well before she was famous, just videos shot of her teaching her Mm -hmm. class in Harvard. And... Uh, well, Aaron, you teach. I know. You're like speaking my no, language. No, no, no. Where it's is like, this going? Where is you, this going? <laughs> you've got your class in front uh-huh. of you, and you try a few tricks, and I mean that as a comedy. Yeah, you no. try a few techniques out uh-huh. with each new class, and then you see what hits, and then you go with what works. It I helps can, to be grading them. <laughs> well, that, okay. <laughs> it is a stack deck. But but no, what I mean is her, her years of face-to-face contact with people, yes, in law schools, but nevertheless, I, I I I see that as a I, I see that as a plus for her. She's used to reaching out to connect to people in a way that Joe Biden isn't. Joe Biden's used to letting the, the well, he reaches out in a different kind of a way. Well, he's Not used anymore. to letting the adulation flow all over him. You know, Obama, who's a very different cat than either of those two. He was used to connecting. I mean, his way was much— And he was a professor, too. That's true, uh, too. But, you know, Jack Kennedy had, you know, knew how to flash his glamour to get people to connect with him. How will Warren do it? I don't know. But I— She's gotten this far connecting. And I think, you know, the issue you brought up of they all need to expand uh, expand their base— um, the top four, and especially if you're not, not in the top four, you really need to expand your base. <laughs> but uh, you know, since we're right, if you're talking about the the top four, you know, I know who I'd like to be, and I'd like to be Joe Biden right now. Um, of those, um, just if you're looking at the resiliency of his numbers with African Americans, especially African American women, um, much to the chagrin of all the candidates, but especially, you know, uh, that's one of the main reasons Kamala Harris got out. That's one of the, you know, constituencies that, you know, Castro, Booker, everybody would like to have, but an identity politics connection Joe Biden does not have. But yet that support has not gone anywhere. If anything, he's on a bit of a rebound. After that, I agree with you, Peter, that, you know, Warren's well situated after that. Um, I think Sanders and Buttigieg are in the same sort of problem. Uh, you know, Sanders Sanders people are going nowhere, but they're just not expanding. Um, Correct. And so, you know, just if I had to pick the lane right now, I, I'd, I'd be much happier advising uh, Biden because it, it's a lot easier to keep someone to, than to woo them away. Let me ask you two one final question. I was wondering in the last Democratic debate if Warren was going to come out and say, you know, it's come to my attention that former President Obama and uh, my home state former governor, Deval Patrick, and, uh, you know, my my friends up here on stage, Pete Buttigieg and, and Joe Biden, believe that it's a mistake for Democrats to be too aggressive, to dream too big, to get too ambitious. Let me tell you why that is exactly what we need to do at this point in time. I wondered if she was going to do that, and she did not. Would it work to her advantage to have a moment like that in the fairly near future? 
she should be paying Adam Riley. Uh, and remember in <laughs> uh, remember in the I think it was the first debate where uh, forgive me I'm pulling on deep. No, memory. that's fine. It was Steyer or you know one of the lesser candidates that paid a lot of money and was on the stage, or maybe it was it doesn't matter. But it was definitely a lesser. They do candidate. all blur together yes, at this point. So um, it was a lesser candidate who said, you know, that uh, essentially what Adam just said. You know, we can't do that. That's too big. We need to take a central a centrist oh, I road. Remember that. And she said, why are you running? for president if you don't want to dream big and you know the audience responded and i think uh you know the democrats can't run on getting donald trump out alone you know part of the fact that obama's making that uh argument i think he unfairly conflates making a big argument with making a really lefty argument you can make a centrist democratic argument and you can make it big and a vision to go to as opposed to something to run away from What Warren needs to do in the next debate is to transcend policy and to embrace her brand. Now, that Adam would get a lot of money for because it's so vague. She has to (laughs) follow up focus groups. (laughs) But by brand, I mean to be the change candidate. A political brand is one that people can project onto it whatever they think they need. It's a very tricky thing to do. Obama did it. Nixon did it. Anyone who's elected president, Trump did it. She needs to transcend her myriad of plans and project the Warren brand. All right, that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Big thanks to Annie Linsky for making time to talk with us and also to Aaron O'Brien for the exact same thing. Aaron, thanks for your insights. I'm really glad you could do this. It's always fun with you guys. Yeah, it's great to have this convo. Mm -hmm. And uh, just a word then, um, Annie Linsky is one of my favorite journalists in the field. Whoever she's writing about she manages to convey a degree of sympathy for whoever that candidate is, but is still really tough. That's in a tough doing balancing it. act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to the Scrum if you haven't. Rate us while you're at it and talk back to us if you're so inclined. You can get us by email or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter, I know you're at Kadzis. Aaron, what's your Twitter I'm handle? I'm at prof underscore EOB. Prof underscore EOB. Got it. We get crucial production help week in and week out from Gary Mott, Dave Goodman, John Parker, and Andrew Masawa. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. 